Welcome to the Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello, everyone, and today your midweek editors are, as always, Liz Lumley and Sam Friend, our online editor. Hello, Hi, Sam. Hello, good to be Welcome here. Welcome back. Times two. This is your second. Thank you very much. Second. Um, and we have a special guest star with us today who needs no introduction. We have Brett King, who flew into the UK this morning. Hello, Brett. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, technically <laughs> afternoon now, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, as our listeners know, The Banker Midweek is our weekly discussion of stories live on the Banker site and newsy bits that will influence future stories. Um, and we are back on the podcast this week. And, of course, the banking saga continues because First Republic in the U.S. has finally fallen. Well, not really fallen, I guess, has been has been scooped up by J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan will acquire First Republic's deposits as U.S. regulators step in. This is all over the mainstream news right at the moment. So all of the news that I've seen is that this is a really good move by J.P. Morgan. <laughs> uh, but I have some views on this. I think there'll be an editor's blog up uh, later on today on the banker site. Um, but why don't, I, why don't I go to you, Brett? What do you think? What do you think about this, all the drama going on in the U.S.? Well, you know, the, the New York Times pointed out that um, with, with the collapse of First Republic uh, and the three banks in terms of asset size, that um, the total asset size of these three banks is bigger than the 25 banks that went under during the 2008 crisis. That's, mm. that's the first data point. The second is that with this, J.P. Morgan now has more than 10% of deposits Mm. Uh, you know, in, in the United States. Yeah, I guess, but, I guess normally they wouldn't have been allowed to, right, to purchase First Republic. Right. Mm. Um, yes, that's, that would have been an antitrust issue. But let's face it, you know, um, you know, if you go back to, you know, 2000, where there was 14,000 financial institutions in the U.S., the U.S. is overbanked in, mm. in terms of number of institutions. So this consolidation has really been a plan of, of the Feds for the last 20 years. Um, but I don't think they like the, the nature of the consolidation that's happening now. But I think it is also a structural change mm -hmm. you know, to, to banking in the U.S. based on the speed of deposits, the way they move, and um, that obviously has created liquidity issues. Mm. I mean, one of the things that's interesting that you read a lot is, well, first of all, when Silicon Valley Bank first fell, you know, a few a few weeks ago, um, months ago, it, there was this issue about contagion. You know, it, the, will this spread to other banks? And what does this mean specifically for mid-sized and small banks in the U.S.? Of course, over here in Europe, we had UBS and Credit Suisse and all, and all of their drama. But it's kind of interesting, and this is the, the editor's post uh, we're putting up today that I was writing about. You know, most small to medium-sized banks in the U.S. don't have depositors with more than 250000 Right. In in cash, uh, in, in their deposits, um, so they're 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 fully insured by 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 the U.S. government. They're a particular customer base of First Republic and Silicon Valley Bank. That sort of tech entrepreneur, that maybe I think had a bigger influence on the failure, especially with this rise in interest rates. We're no longer in a low interest rate world. That world has come to an end. We're now in a grown up world, <laughs> and I think that probably it's more of a tech industry issue than a banking crisis issue. I don't know, Sam, if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, I think, you know, I was reading, where was it, in The Economist, I think, mm. that, um, as far as contagion goes, there, there have been good signs, you know, it's good that JP Morgan has picked up First Republic, but uh, in terms of share prices, um, it looks like other American banks, regional banks, 
uh, their share prices have been relatively unaffected. Mm. Mm. So I think it shows that it is more a bank specific issue and, you know, it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. Um, although also in The Economist, I did read that they're predicting a, a wave of bank mergers. Um, so they said there are 20 banks, which are between 100 and $250 billion in size. Uh, if the penalty for crossing the $250 billion threshold is reduced, many may find it advantageous to merge. Uh, doing so would allow them to spread the growing costs of complying with regulation over a biggest business while making it even more likely that depositors would be bailed out in a crisis. Mm, that's kind of what you were talking about, that, that con you know, convergence we're going through. Yeah, I, 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 I did see that there, uh, there's 4,700 um, banks in the US. So in terms of numbers, that means there's uh, one bank for every 71,000 people in the US versus 85,000 in the EU. So there's quite a big difference um, from region to region there. Yeah, I think the consolidation is is anticipated globally. Mm. Um, but when you have big banks like this go under, who, who in normal terms, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, if it hadn't have been for things like social media, mm. um, it's quite possible that they wouldn't have gone under. The Twitter bank run. Yeah. You know. <laughs> uh, but, but I do think there's a structural change here. Mm. I think, you know, what, what it takes to be a good bank these days is def definitely changing. Mm. Yeah. So I guess maybe the advice is if you're a multimillionaire, don't keep all your money. In, in one bank. <laughs> spread it around. <laughs> well, hey, we, we might disagree on that one. <laughs> no, I'm just but, but, you know, moving on, I mean, in, in terms of, of contagion, um, you know, basically, you know, uh, people like myself uh, and, and yourself, uh, Brett, we go a lot to a lot of conferences and end up uh, chatting with people with, with, with drinks at the at end of the day. And uh, some of the other banks that people mention a lot um, uh, are a lot of banks in Europe, and specifically Deutsche Bank has come up a lot as a bank to watch. I know I remember before UBS, um, when Credit Suisse fell, uh, I think it was Cybos last year in Amsterdam, I had three separate people told me, tell me that they gave Credit Suisse six months. Mm -hmm. And it was about six months before, before it fell. But what's interesting about Deutsche Bank is that they did go through a period of restructuring. They, they uh, let go a lot of people um, uh, at the bank, and they have, um, he's, he's been there about two years, a new investment banking boss, uh, for, for, I'm going to kill, I'm going to kill these names when I always stutter, Fabrizio Capelli, um, and he's kind of turning the bank around and expanding, so he's beeped up the uh, investment bank advisory team, uh, so they're, they're not, no longer shrinking and restructuring, and also, there's a bit of a surprise investment from Deutsche Bank, where they uh, bought uh, a company called Numus Corp for $511 million, which is a London-based boutique investment bank. So it seems like the whispers about Deutsche Bank, they're kind of fighting back, and um, the uh, the uh, reports of their demise might be overstated. <laughs> what have you heard about European banks? In, in 2008, I was visiting India, and the Economic Times reported me because I said that HSBC and Deutsche were, were likely going to be two of the biggest uh, victims of digitization of banking. Mm. And I said that because from a cultural perspective that I thought, as particularly the retail banking mm. arms, were a long way from um, the culture required to adapt to sort of this wave of digitization. Ha having said that, I think that both with HSBC and Deutsche, um, that they still got a, a, a pretty robust business outside of retail banking. But, the, you know, I do see them over time, you know, sp specializing in some parts of retail and dwindling that side of the business and, and mm -hmm. depending more on the investment banking side of the business. So, um, 
you know, I think if, if you look at what it takes to be a really good digital bank in retail these days, um, you know, even the best, you know, neo banks like Revolut and others, you know, have got challenges at running a, a, a really optimized digital bank too. Mm, yeah, they're, they're running into a few challenges, so the one, the specific one that you mentioned. Um, so why don't we go into the, I don't know, wait, do you have any views on Deutsche Bank, Sam? I forgot. I, I just think um, they're, you know, they, like you said, they've been restructuring mm. for a while or planning that, but I think they're probably taking advantage of the situation. You know, Credit Suisse has, you know, yeah, a lot exactly. of people have been released into the market, so they're probably jumping on, on that talent. Um, and perhaps due to the, the whispers that you speak of, you know, mm. maybe they're really fighting back against, against that market perception uh, and just taking advantage of the of the. The situation. I mean, e even in the German market now, you have, you know, what N26 is what, the third most valuable bank or fourth most valuable bank in the German market. So mm -hmm. there is market share changes happening yeah. in markets as well. And I think it's interesting that it's, it's an Italian taking over the investment banking for a, a big German bank. So that's, that's, that's their version of, of diversity <laughs> over, there, <laughs> over there in Europe. So we're going on to the banker site now. Yes, Stefan. So we have um, an article coming out from our contributor, James King, looking at this new AI regulation, which may present some challenges for Europe. So a lot of these plans are to create a trustworthy and responsible environment for AI development within the European Union. And it's uh, so they're basically proposing um, it's called the Artificial Intelligence Act. Um, and it is going to at its core, the AI Act aims to create a trustworthy and responsible environment for AI development within the European Union. And to do this, lawmakers have adopted a classification system that categorizes different types of artificial intelligence by risk. Unacceptable, high, limited, and minimal. Now there are, I have to say, this, this might, go, might go against type with me, but I, I find all the scaremongering around AI to be kind of annoying. <laughs> <laughs> like, is it, how much of this is we're all gonna die the robots will take over and kill us, and how much of this is, well, we need sort of responsible regulations looking at AI development. Well, you know, there is a bit of a trend here. If you look at um, data privacy and you look at AI, the EU is really leading globally regulation around this, and, and, and we need that sort of leadership. Mm -hmm. um, but, of course, on the other side of it, um, you know, the, the EU doesn't have a formidable AI player, you know, from a, a large, uh, you know, LLM. Uh, large language learning model um, perspective, you know, uh, pre, pre-transformer generative AI stuff. Um, having said that, um, you know, I, I do think that the regulations coming out of the the EU will become a template for the rest of the world. Mm. And what we're what we're finding now, if you look at the comments from um, Sam Altman and OpenAI and so forth, is we we have reached some of the limitations of these large models, mm. and we need to go back to. If we want the ethics and, you know, the, the, to de-risk AI, we need to look at better data models that train these AIs. And that's where I think we're at at the, at the moment in terms of we do need to tweak our approach to it. But pausing AI development, I don't yeah. think that's realistic. Yeah, I think I, I spoke about this in an earlier podcast, that, that le famous letter that came out about pausing. I, I kind of I kind of took that as the the big Googles of the world getting a little upset they were being usurped and said oh no everyone stop well, <laughs> and, you know um, it was really Nick Bostrom and Elon Musk mm. that drove that and Elon was a bit uh, upset that you know he he put a hundred million into 
open AI and as a non-profit and then became a, a, a for-profit. So, mm -hmm. um, and Vincent he was pushed Hedison. out of it. So. Well, before we get on, we're going to talk a little bit about um, Elon, but I'm going to save that from, for the end because I wanted to talk a little bit about um, a brand new podcast out from the Banker Portfolio from our very own Anita Hauser, our European editor, and it is called Banking in the Shadows. And the episode that's up right now is on mobilizing finance against human trafficking. So she said what's very interesting is that the article's not just about flagging uh, when there are instances of, of human trafficking in banks, but also looking to kind of take care of these people once they're rescued. Uh, so there's a financial inclusion uh, element of this and, uh, and, and giving people uh, un unfortunate victims of human trafficking bank accounts and looking to rebuild their lives, which is very much in the banking as a, a essential part of society that I'm, I'm very much I'm very much uh, in in favor of it's 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 you know what I have to say I, I, this is and I'm not being flippant you know when we're sitting here in a nice comfy office in central London and you think of the uh, you know the amount of modern slavery and human trafficking that still goes on in the 21st century I think um, the, the Anita said in um, with her interviewees in the podcast that um, you know perhaps this has um, the population growing has an impact on this, but there are more people today in in slavery than there ever has been in history. I think something like fifteen million, Jeez. perhaps more. Um, well, also mm. it's a you know I mean you you talk about slavery. Mm. You know we can look at economic slavery as well. Mm. There's there's plenty of people who are paycheck to paycheck and just surviving and you know, just part of the machinery, the inequality situation, you know, in, in the United States in particular, but mm. it's a problem in the UK and Australia uh, as well as an example. Um, you know, it's the worst inequality we've seen in hundreds of years. Mm. You know, and, and this is a, this is not a bug of capitalism. It's a feature. It's a feature. Yeah. Highly recommend, um, a, uh, a third party podcast, uh, the Ezra Klein show on New York times. He did a piece a week or so ago about poverty in the U S which is really, yeah. really kind of eye opening and, and sobering. It's, um, it's really heartbreaking, uh, to look at, yeah, poverty could basically be solved, solved overnight. Yes. If you choose yeah. not to. We have the tools to, yeah. to fix it. If, if you go to, um, many U S cities now, you can see the scale of the homelessness problem mm. and it's only getting worse, especially in, in places like San Francisco and, uh, and LA, um, uh, but like you say, you know, mm. th there are things that can be done but aren't being done. Well, homelessness is, is dramatically undercounted in the United States, and we know this because the official figures are something like 650,000 homeless, but we know there are roughly 2.3 million students that are homeless. We know that from the Department of Education statistics. Um, so this is a, a massive problem. And also um, because of the un economic uncertainty around the uh, pandemic, uh, you know, and, and rental, there's there's 30 million American households facing eviction today, you know. So um, this is a, uh, a problem. But as you say, there's 17 million vacant homes in the US. So theoretically, we could fix it. But it, but it's good. I'm glad Anita did this podcast because there is, I think there is a, a role for the banking environment to try and find some solution for this and, and move forward. So let's end our discussion about Twitter's bad boyfriend, Elon Musk, <laughs> my beloved Twitter. So uh, he has decided to roll out a paywall for Twitter's data. Company uh, will now charge developers and companies to access uh, its API in the latest bid for fresh revenues beyond advertising. Um, and what I found um, that this kind of tickled me, they they quoted in this article, I think this was from the New York Times, Chris Messina, who is the in inventor of the hashtag. 
I didn't know there was an inventor. I didn't know there was an inventor of a hashtag. Naturally yeah. evolved. He's but imagine that being your only, I know. only <laughs> thing you've ever done it's, in your career. It's on his LinkedIn and everything. <laughs> I invented the hashtag. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I feel so bad for Twitter because I absolutely love Twitter, but I'm a journalist and we unfortunately loved Twitter. But it, I'm not... Do you think it will survive the great Elon Musk's takeover? I'm not sure social media in its mm. current form can survive, you know. Mm. Uh, um, and as we move to sort of more agency-based AI, I do think the the concept of social media, the way we have it today, um, you know, won't survive because it'll be so heavily manipulated. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, but I think in terms of that flow of consciousness, um, there there needs to be some equivalent mm -hmm. uh, of platform, but um, better curated. Well, um, founder of uh, Twitter, Jack Dorsey, has um, um, been working on his own new platform called Blue Sky. So, uh, I, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure the ins and outs of it. I think it's it's quite similar, but, you know, I, I think some people are, are moving there. And I'm, I'll be interested to see um, what Twitter's user numbers are, because I think over the next two years, they're, they're predicted to drop by four to five percent um, per year. But, you know, the, the actual numbers, I, I fear, will be much greater mm. are, are people moving away or are they holding on and ho hoping that it's going to improve again and elon's going to stop with his uh, short-sighted yeah. money grabbing the, the one thing that elon could do with twitter <laughs> that could make a difference is turn it into a payments network right? well isn't that is that what he's planning on doing yeah, yeah. yeah. oh well, well he's even X, renamed the, it as x.com yeah. right? yeah. which is the original i mean the thing yeah. that thing that breaks my heart a little bit and this is kind of maybe seems counterintuitive but i think twitter worked and this kind of gets into the hashtag worked best when you talked to a specific group of people. Right. I think it starts falling apart when you have that mass audience. And that's when you get the people who don't get nuance and, and bots and, it, and people being attacked. And But I think, you know, 90% of my Twitter experience is talking to fintech people. <laughs> and we're good people. <laughs> Mostly. We like to think so. <laughs> we like to think so. Um, yeah, so some some way that it could go back to those early days when it felt like you were in a kind of digital cocktail party. I think quite often that's always the, the vibe that people get mm. in any new social media and then it always goes the way of, you know, yeah. like, uh, I think there was a, a website called Dig or uh, that was replaced by Reddit and then, you know, Facebook has b since become the place not to be if you're, <laughs> you know, hip and happening. So I need to see all my friends' kids grow up. That's the only place for Facebook. I know, and there's a lot more ads on TikTok now. Anyway, it's all going. It's all going to end. Someday, we'll all just be talking to each other. Everything will be monetized to its maximum extent oh, at, God, at one point. It's like the heat death of the universe. It's inevitable. <laughs> on that bombshell. <laughs> anyway, Sam and Brett, thank you so much for joining us on the Bank of Midweek. No worries. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Banker Midweek, part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at The Banker, available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix. Search on The Banker Podcasts to listen to more.